Good morning, friends. Uh, this me- morning, the message is titled Rubbish, and it's based on Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And I will confess early on that in preparing to head to Angola again sometime early this next year, we're going to be teaching the book of Philippians. So I've been writing a number of messages on this book, and this is just one of them. As you read Philippians 3, 1 to 11, to me, one of the most arresting parts of this passage is actually verse 8. And in this verse, I'm struck by one word Paul uses to describe his own life. Listen to what he says. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, if you circle that word rubbish, the Greek word is skubala, used here only here in the New Testament. It literally means dung or excrement. As Paul looks at his background, he says, it's all dung in my eyes compared with the privilege of knowing Christ my Lord. Now, why would a man use such a word to describe his own past life? I mean, is he being a little bit hard on himself, or is this an exaggeration just to get our attention, or did he really mean it? So, do you know why God put you where you are right now? I mean, that's a tough question for some of us to answer. Have you ever wondered about that? Why does God put you right where you are right now? That is, why are you where you are at this moment in time? Do you think it happened by chance that you are single or married with children at home or long since removed or with a good job or stuck in a bad one? Or is there a larger purpose at work in your life? Now, let me ask that question from a completely different perspective. What will you have to show for your life when you stand before Jesus? Now, sooner than you think, you'll be lying in a box six feet underground with grass growing over your head. And all the things of this life won't matter much, if at all. I mean, someone else is going to have your money, your job, your fame will fade, your glory will disappear. Everything you own will belong to others, and someone else will be sitting in your place at church. You'll eventually be forgotten, except by those people who stumble on your gravestone a hundred years from now and say, I wonder who this guy was. Uh, Howard Hendricks, a uh, fairly well-known pastor, has said it this way, only two things in this life are eternal, the word of God and people. It only makes sense to build your life around those things that will last forever. Now, the word of God will last forever. People last forever. Everything else disappears. When asked by a job interviewer about his goal in life, one man said, my goal in life is to go to heaven and to take as many people with me as possible. The Apostle Paul would hardly agree with that. The question is, where will you be when you get where you are going? Now, some of us need to think about that. Evidently, Paul had wrestled deeply with this question and had evaluated the entire direction of his life before and after he met Jesus. And once he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life was radically and utterly transformed. His his values uh, were literally turned upside down. Everything he thought was so important became like well, dung to him when he compared it with the joy of knowing Jesus. Now, I want to show you from this passage how Paul came to that startling conclusion. And as we move through these verses, take some time to ponder that question in the back of your mind. Where will you be when you get where you are going? Well, we're going to start with a stern warning in verses 1 to 3. This passage uh, begins with... <clears throat> with a stern warning because evidently some false teachers had infiltrated the church at Philippi and Paul wanted to make sure the congregation knew how to handle them. 
And so in verse 2, he uses three exceedingly harsh terms to describe these false teachers. He calls them dogs. Now, these are not house pets, but wild dogs that roam the streets. And he called them men who do evil and mutilators of the flesh. I mean, these guys were immoral, influential, and injurious. They were zealous but wrong, active in the church, but evil in their influence. Now, evidently, they were professing Jewish Christians who taught that you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. They claimed that circumcision was necessary in order to be accepted by God. And to the Apostle Paul, this was nothing less than heresy. I mean, it's one thing for a man to decide he wants to keep the law of Moses for himself. It's something else to demand that everyone else do as he does. It's even worse to say that if you don't do as I do, you can't be saved. I mean, to say that you've got to keep the law in order to be saved is to deny the gospel of grace. And these men were mutilating the souls of the people they claimed to be helping. Now, notice Paul's answer in verse 3 when he says, We are the circumcision. Now, he means that true believers have been circumcised in their hearts through faith in Jesus. So we don't need a physical operation because we've had a spiritual heart transplant. As a result, we worship in the spirit, we give glory to Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, let me be clear about this. Religion without Jesus is dangerous. I mean, millions of people today are trusting in their religion to get them to heaven. They believe that because they were baptized as a baby or as a child or as a teenager or as an adult, they're going to heaven. Or they think that just because they were raised as a Baptist or Methodist or Church of Christ, they must be born again. It's not so. Religion without Jesus is going to send you to hell. You can say your prayers five times a day. You can be baptized. You can be. You can listen to Billy Graham. You can take the Lord's Supper. You can light all the Advent candles you want. You can drop a million bucks in the offering plate. And if you don't know Jesus, it's not going to do you any good. I mean, many religious people have Christ plus faith. They're trusting in Christ plus baptism or Christ plus church membership or Christ plus going to mass or divine service or Christ plus good works or Christ plus giving money. They love to sing that old gospel song, Jesus paid almost all of it because they think they've got to add their part to what Jesus did. But friends, don't trust in your religion. It can't save you. And don't trust in your parents' faith either. It can't save you. Don't trust in your baptism. It can't save you. Don't trust in your church attendance. It can't save you. See, religion is good. So is baptism. So is church membership and many of the other outward trappings of Christianity. But if your heart has never been circumcised by faith in Jesus, you are not saved and you're not going to heaven. That's the warning Paul wants you to understand. And so secondly, he goes to this misplaced confidence in verses 4 to 6. He goes on to give a personal illustration from his own life. And so he offers us his personal spiritual pedigree, and he lists uh, seven different points about his background. Uh, <clears throat> first of all is the right ritual. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. The right race. He's an Israelite. The right family. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. The right religion. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had the right occupation. He was a Pharisee. He had the right zeal, a persecutor of the church, a right morality, outwardly keeping all of God's commands. Now, friends, if you aren't impressed, it's only because you're not a Jew living in the first century. I mean, there's a pattern we sometimes use to describe people from a very high position in society. We call them blue bloods. Well, Paul was a Jewish blue blood. He was as in as you could be in the first century. He had it all. Jewish descent, excellent Jewish education, high social standing, a reputation for keeping the law, 
and reputation for moral purity. I mean, what more could you want? Now, stop right there. That's the whole point of this passage. What more could you want? I mean, if, be, if being religious could get you to heaven, then Paul would have had a guaranteed you know, front row seat next to Moses and Elijah. His spiritual resume was as good as it gets. He'd be the number one draft pick. Now, the point is, most people in the world stop right there and they go no further. They take a look at their spiritual resume and figure, well, you know, it's not too bad. Maybe it's not as good as Paul's, but it's surely good enough to, you know, squeak into heaven. Uh, they go to church occasionally. They try to be good. They haven't killed anyone lately. They try to help others in need and figure that somehow it's all going to work out in the end. They subscribe to the oldest religion in the world. It's the do the best you can religion. They figure as long as you do your best, when you die, God's going to smile, shake his head and say, ah, oh, you know, just come, come on in. I mean, most people sincerely believe that doing their best is enough. Now, what more could you want? Well, let's go on to our third point, a new accounting in verses 7 and 8. Paul here considers his life before and after coming to Christ. He, he does a kind of a mental accounting to draw up a spiritual profit loss statement. On the profit side, he puts two words, Jesus Christ. On the loss side, he lists those seven things he used to brag about. Now think about that for a moment. Paul is casting aside his national heritage, his ethnic background, his religious training, his family heritage, his years of education, his training as a Pharisee, his reputation for religious zeal, and his standing as a man of high moral character. He's saying, this stuff doesn't matter at all. It's, it, it's all dung to me. Scubala. The only thing that matters in life is knowing Jesus. Now, I only have one question at this point, but it's a big one. Why would Paul come to such a radical conclusion? When we read about rubbish, we ordinarily assume he's talking about things God calls sinful. And for most of us, the rubbish of life, our life, involves angry thoughts or bad habits or you know, dabbling in pornography or sexual immorality or what we call gross misconduct or idolatry, witchcraft, uh, racial prejudice, it, you know, all that bad stuff that we know is wrong. Now, if I said to you, get the rubbish out of your life, I mean, how many of you would instinctively think about your ethnic heritage or your college education or seminary education or your years being a Sunday school teacher? But that's precisely what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 3. For Paul, anything that keeps you from Christ is rubbish and dung, no matter how good it looks to you. Now, it's not that these things on his list, on Paul's list, are, are wrong in themselves. I mean, most of them are morally neutral. There was nothing wrong with being circumcised. In fact, God commanded it in the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong from being from the tribe of Benjamin. Nothing wrong with zealously keeping God's law. I mean, the heritage issues were things he couldn't change about his own background and his lifestyle choices, other than you know persecuting the church, which in themselves weren't in themselves sinful. But they were rubbish to him because he took inordinate pride in them. He looked down on others because of them. He evaluated everything in light of them. And in the end, those human things were the dung that had to be thrown overboard so that he could come to Jesus. Now, a person could say, you know, I'm, um, I, I'm Presbyterian. My father was a Presbyterian. My grandfather was a Presbyterian. All my ancestors for 12 generations were Presbyterians. I'm descended from John Knox on my father's side and Jonathan Edwards on my mother's side, and both of them are descended from John Calvin. Now, if somebody told me that, I'd say, well, that, that's cool, that's neat. I mean, you should be proud of a, a heritage like that. 
you you could be Lutheran. You could you could say the same thing that you 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 know you're a Lutheran. Your father was Lutheran. Your grandfather was Lutheran. All your relatives were Lutheran. I mean, you descended from Martin Luther for heaven's sakes. Now you ought to be proud of a heritage like that, but don't make the mistake of thinking that your heritage gets you any special favors from God. You must be saved by grace, just like everyone else, and that truth applies to all of us. Uh, just substitute Baptist, Catholic, Lutheran, you know, Church of the Brethren, Methodist, or fill in the blank with your favorite religious silo. I mean, all of us come from one background or another. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, born in Nebraska, and and I'm proud to be a Husker. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to be able to say, "Go Big Red." And I imagine that people, wherever you're born, you know, I know people who, you know, are rabid. Longhorn fans. I know people, you know, worry about the Bears and the Pratt Packers uh, in Missouri. We got a lot of Kansas City Chiefs fans, and they're very proud of that. And, and you should be, you know. But there's there's no reason not to take pride in your ethnic or national heritage or where you're from. I mean, appreciate the good points. Learn from the inevitable mistakes made by your ancestors, or you know, or learn from those who've been following the Cowboys, but they don't seem to be doing well. But, and th this is the point of Philippians 3, if you think that being, you know, American or Japanese or Indian or Portuguese or an Eskimo somehow puts you in a better position with God, you're sadly mistaken. If you use your national heritage to look down at other people because you feel superior to them, you haven't yet understood your own sin and how desperately you stand in need of God's grace. I mean, as Paul did an accounting of his life, that's the conclusion he came to, that his advantages, whatever they were, didn't matter in God's eyes, and that in some ways they actually kept him from discovering God's grace until he learned to count them as dung compared with the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. But so instead, he this is the fourth point, and this is a new goal, a new life goal. It's in verses 9 to 11. And I wonder if we understand how radical this perspective really is. I mean, look at what we have in Jesus. Verse 9 talks about full justification. Verse 10, continual sanctification. And verse 11, future glorification. Now, I'll be honest with you. Some people consider verse 11 a strange verse because Paul seems to be expressing doubt about his own resurrection when he says, somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, I think he means to say that Jesus is his plan A and he has no plan B. I think he's saying, I'm trusting in Jesus so fully that I don't have a fallback position. I mean, if Jesus doesn't come through for me, my body is going to rot in the grave. That's what salvation by faith is all about. It means trusting Jesus so completely that if he can't take you to heaven, you aren't going to go there. So here's the point, friends. Put all that we have in Jesus on one side of the ledger and then put your spiritual resume on the other side. What we have in Jesus is so great that nothing in this world can compare to it. It's rubbish. Now, Paul expresses this goal of his life twice in these verses. He says in verse 9, that I may be found in him. He wants to live in such a way that when the end comes, he will be found by God in Christ. I mean, take a piece of paper and an open book. Let the open book represent Jesus and the piece of paper of your life. Now take the paper, place it in the open book, and close the book so that the paper is completely covered. Now, the paper, your life, is in the book, Jesus. It's not enough to be near Jesus or next to Jesus. True salvation means to be in Jesus so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus instead. 
And that's what Paul means here in verse 9 when he speaks of having a righteousness that comes from God by faith. To be in Jesus means that God imputes or reckons the righteousness of Jesus to your account. So you get credit for Jesus' perfect righteousness. And then he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Now, whenever I see those words, I can't help but think of a a friend who died a number of years ago. I mean, he had a, a passion to know Jesus deeply and personally, and that passion infiltrated every area of his life. And when he he died, I remember that on his tombstone, all he wanted was to say, I want to know Christ. See, that brings me back to the question I asked earlier. Where will you be when you get where you're going? I mean, you finally come to the end of your life. What will you have to show for the 30-year, 50-year, the 70 or the 90 years you were here? I mean, uh, they ended up in heaven because that's where they were living on earth. The problem so many people have is that they're still playing in the rubbish heap of life and their hands are covered with the dung of earthly gain that counts for nothing compared to knowing Jesus. I mean, 2,000 years ago, the Lord asked the question this way, Mark 8:36, What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Friends, we're all on a journey from time to eternity. Sooner or later, and sooner than we think, we're going to be in the casket and people will be weeping over us. And what are they going to say about you then? What will they put on your tombstone? Now, he spent his life on things that didn't matter, or he met Jesus and his life was never the same. So, do you know Jesus? Or are you still trusting in your religion to get you to heaven? I'd urge you to do a new accounting of your life and figure out what really matters and what doesn't. If you are listening and you don't know Jesus, you're in danger of losing your eternal soul. In this world and the next, nothing matters but knowing Jesus and being found in him. Are you willing to trade your own spiritual resume for the righteousness of Jesus, the Messiah? So I'd ask, would you like to go to heaven? Well, here are five words that can take you there. Only Jesus and Jesus only. May God help you to leave the rubbish of your good deeds and run to the cross where you find new life in Christ. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.